This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, there's a lot of different ways to approach, a lot of different ways to approach proof, like just a strict proof of God without the discovery information, but just to get like to a basic proof of God, a lot of ways to skin the cat. But uh, one of the ways that I've been driving in for the last couple of years, um, which has been very successful, and, and even like sworn atheists have said, now that's a God I could believe in, is, uh, is the following. So it's like this. Before there was something, there was nothing. Before there was something, there was nothing. Now everyone agrees, yo, thank you so much. Why are you looking stressed? Relax. It's only 8, 10. Okay, we're having a good time here. So it'll say, uh, it'll, it'll say, yom to- control Yom Tov, that particular one. You're looking stressed to me. <laughs> he's, not, he's not looking relaxed. Okay, so, um, so before there was something, there was nothing. Now, everyone agrees on that. There's no arguments about that. Whether you're an observant Jew who believes, you know, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, well, before there was heaven and earth, what was it? Nothing. And science also believes this because they believe, science believes this is an expanding universe. And the expanding universe obviously started at a certain point. Now, if you grew up like we did, they taught us the Big Bang Theory, except they dropped the name theory and just told, us to us, told it to us as if it was fact, and, and, which it may be, but, the, but it is really a theory. And, but they never, no one in my class, and probably no one in your class said, because they say, well, it all started with one little point of matter. But no one ever asked, and I didn't either, I'm embarrassed. Yeah, where'd the little point of matter come from? Did anyone ask in your class? I didn't ask. Did you ask? I didn't ask. I did ask who's the big banger. Because, because if you have a little, you know, a little point. So it's static now. Like who says it's going to bang into a universe? Like that's it's crazy. Anyway, but you should know the Ramban holds that the whole world is expanding from something the size of a, must, size of a mustard seed. You know, so the Ramban is, is very close to the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. And it is kind of interesting how the entire... Ev- we grew up with being taught evolution, and it's very interesting that evolution goes... You know, it goes mineral, and then there were fish, and then there were fowl, and then there were... Um, uh, plant- oh, no, plants are before that. Uh, mineral, then, uh, you know, the earth, and then veg- the plants, uh, fish, fowl... What? It's online. Discovery, maybe? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm, I'm like, I'm the least logistical person on earth. It's very disturbing. Rambam holds that the world expanded from something the size of a mustard seed, quote unquote. Found it? So the, anyway, the, so the Big Bang, before there was something, there was nothing. Oh, you weren't here. So before there was something, there was nothing. <laughs> now, here's the interesting thing, is all the scientists believe there was nothing before there was something, and they hate it. They hate it. The Big Bang Theory is very problematic for, for atheists. Why? Because, because once you have nothing, you never get something. There's never something. You know, if I, if I emptied out this cup and sealed it off... <laughs> sealed it off and even sucked the air out and like turned, made it into a vacuum. 
and we come back a year later, what's going to be in it? Nothing. Uh, two years, thousand years, a million years. Nothing makes what? Nothing. No. But there's spontaneous generation. So there's no spontaneous generation. There's discussion of spontaneous generation. And there's no such thing as spontaneous generation. Wow, you got off that quick. Yeah, there's no spontaneous generation. But they sure want there to be. So that's what I was saying. So listen, they're desperate for a spontaneous generation. Desperate. And it's the atheists who are driving this. And every big university has a, has a department called theoretical physics. And the job of the theoretical physicist, well, is mostly to stare at their belly button and think about where did this world come from? Because it can't be nothing. Because nothing makes nothing. And since now there's something. So we got to figure out what that nothing is because we can't let it be God. And you know what I call those people? I call them the high priests of the secular world. The theoretical physicists, physicists are the high priests of the secular world. And, and, and I happen to know plenty of them. They're really cool guys. And they're, they're like, they're kind of hippie-ish. But I really love them. And they're, they're sweethearts, you know. And, they're, and they really, like, I've actually gotten, in, you know, gotten down and dirty with them. And they, they've admitted, like, you know, that's probably God. Because we have no idea what it is. And, and, they, uh, and they'll come up with these multiverse things as if God can't create a multiverse. You know, it's like, you know, this space-time continuum is a no-brainer for God. We're, so who says God didn't make multiple space-time continuums? Why, why should we be so convinced he only did one of them? Could be, maybe he did many of them. So anyway, whatever they say, before there was something, there was nothing. Now, how do we look at it? So I, I call it the five-second proof of God, and it goes like this. Before there was something, there was nothing, and now that there's something... Sorry, <laughs> I blew my own proof. Before there was something, there was nothing. And that's not five seconds. Ready? Before there was something, there was nothing, and since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. I'll say it again. Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Now I'll say it slow. Before there was something, there was? Nothing. And since? Nothing. Makes. Nothing. And now that there's? Something. something it must be that nothing was? God. God. You got that? Everything I'm sharing with you, before there was something, there was nothing. This whole proof is from the Rambam. But the Rambam says you can't prove this God. You can only give enough proof to show and eliminate everything else that you know it has to be God. But you That's what we just did. But you cannot prove this God. Are you God. talking semantically? Yeah, it's yeah. not a fact. It's not a fact. Okay, I, I, okay. In semantics, I know what you're saying. Now I got it. I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you were talking about. Yeah, so he's saying we're eliminating all other... Po- That's what I was doing. I was eliminating all other possibilities because once you have nothing, so then, and, and there's nothing there, so we've now eliminated everything. <laughs> and now we have a world that's an expanding universe that came out of seemingly nowhere, but that's not possible. Unless, of course, there is God. You understand? I understand. I got what you're saying. But you're, it's much more semantic what you're saying because these people live in their actual lives. And when you speak in that way, I'm not you, meaning when, when we speak in those terms, so then we're, we're leaving the world of where people live, which I call physiolosophy. 
physiosophy is when is the you know philosophy means the study of ideas physiology is the study of you know the body and when we live our lives we live our lives physiologically because because things make sense or they don't and that's where you really live whereas you know you get a bunch of talking heads in universities who want to you know like just just play you know mental pinball all the time you know, and they'll get a lot of covered and a lot of, you know, and they're great, you know, fabulous, you know. Like, but I personally would fall asleep if someone gave me a Devartor that was that intellectual. Um, and by the way, I don't consider myself an intellectual even a little. I'm an interpersonal. And I just happen to be an interpersonal with a brain. And not just arms to hug people when I say hi to them. Now, um, you know, we'll stick with that when it's part of a longer class. So before there was something, there was, what was there? Nothing. Nothing. And what is that, what do we call that nothing? God. And that's why atheists, that's why atheists will say to me, now, Rabbi Glazer, that's a God I can believe in. I always thought God was nothing. So we learned nothing. Yeah, so, so far you've learned nothing. So, so he was like, Yeah. You know, that's, that's a God I can believe in. Now, I'm just looking for the password. Anyway, step three. So step one, before there was something, there was nothing. Step two, that nothing's what we call God. Step three and four are the two things we know about God. Now, you would think, if it's nothing, how can you know anything? Right? And we can you bring in our more philosophical man here. What's your name? Baruch. So, Baruch, we can bring you in for this part. So if it's nothing, then there's nothing you can know about it. But there's two things we know. Would you stop? <laughs> He's so cute. Just because you're nothing doesn't mean because you don't know that there's nothing when nothing is. That there's not something in nothing. You're saying that it's part of your term. If your brain was anywhere open, it'd be all over the floor. There's no such thing as nothing. Anyway, so, so there's two things we know about the nothing. One, one thing we know about the nothing is that it's one, because you can only have one nothing. Think about it. Everyone take a moment. Everyone take a moment. Close your eyes. Okay, now you probably still see some light, so now take your right hand like you're saying Shema and cover it tight. What do you see? Nothing. Nothing. How many is there? <laughs> one. So it's, it's one nothing. There's no plural for nothing. Right. You can't say nothing. Right, because there's two definitions for one. One is the way we think of it numerically, like one, two, three. You know, hey, there's one banana here. Okay, that's, that's uh, numeric one. And then there's something that we usually would learn, use more of the word oneness. Okay, Torah doesn't use the word oneness. Torah used the word one. But, you know, oneness, meaning it's absolutely undifferentiated oneness. So nothing... Nothing, ultimately, is one. Because you can't have two nothings. And if you multiply nothing by 30, what do you get? Nothing. Nothing. So it's a oneness. Whatever it is, whatever that nothing is, it's one. Which is very in, pretty incredible, because it's a distinction between, between us and the other monotheists. You would think monotheists all agree about you know, God. Except monotheists believe in one God. Nowhere in our Torah does it say there's one God. 
But several times in the Torah it says that God is one. See, the belief in one God, which I call softcore monotheism, the belief in one God is, is the belief that, you know, we're here, this place is real. This is a real place. And we believe in a God out there. And there's one of them, like numerically. There's one of them. The Greeks had many gods, and we got one. Whereas monotheism, which I call hardcore monotheism, is the belief that God is one. Do you hear the distinction? Now, we're going to keep going with that, but there's another thing we know about God. And that is that whatever this God is, whatever this nothing is, or, you know, it's obviously God, it's not nothing, it's God. But whatever this God is, it has or employs intelligence. How do we know that to be true? The answer is, what's the propensity of nothing to remain what? Nothing. Nothing. But here, whatever this nothing is, it seems to have intention. It has intention. It doesn't remain nothing. I mean, the truth is it does because it's infinite. And it goes on forever and ever, obviously. But it intended for there to be a creation. So, so even though it's nothing and should stay nothing, it obviously didn't because it chose to create an expanding universe. Which means that whatever this being is, it's got intelligence. Because it's got intention, because then there's a creation. But not only that, it's got ability. Because it sh- it's an expanding universe, and if you know anything about the galaxies, you know, it's just incredible what it is. But here's the other thing is it's an expanding universe. What does expansion cause? Order or chaos? Chaos. The more it expands, the more, it, the more chaos there is. Yet this being that made this place not only has an expanding universe, but it's also got some kind of an order effect going on. Meaning what should be chaos and entropy comes into order and creation, which is really amazing. Now, by the way, all these are names of God. So, Anyway, the, um, so it goes like this. The f- before, let's go all six steps. Normally I have a whiteboard, but we'll do all six steps. Before there was something, there was? Nothing. That nothing is what we call God. Step three is what, uh, the step three is that it is, whatever it is, it is one. one. Step four is that it is it, or it's employing intelligence. It's, it's definitely got, it it's got intention. It's got ability. Yeah. And by the way, I was saying before that all that we see in this expanding universe is made of Shemos. So the name Yud and Hei and Vav and Hei, that's the expansion name. And the Shem Shin, Dalet, and Yud, Sha, and then Dai, means, what's the word Dai mean? Enough. With the Shin, that it's enough. And that's the order name. Meaning right now, you notice you're all in your seats, but you're not in your neighbor's seat. Yeah, you're in your seat, but you're not on this guy's lap, you know. So, so the reason is there's order. If God were to remove that name from our creation, Shin, Dalit, and Yud, if he just removed it, this whole room would go into a blender. But not only the room would go into a blender, this hotel, Connecticut, you know, the, our solar system would just go... And just fly away. Because who knows? Who knows what would happen? Everything's in its orbits, all based on the Shin, Dalit, and Yud. Name in creation. 
And, and by the way, the reason it's on your doorpost, you ever notice it's on your doorpost, is that's the name on the mezuzah. We actually write it on the outside of the parchment of a mezuzah. The reason that's the name on your mezuzah is because your home is your order. When you leave your home, you're going into chaos, meaning compared to your home. Home's order, out of your home's that chaos. And so when you leave, <laughs> his home's chaos. So when you, he said not always. So, smart out. So when you leave your home, you touch that mezuzah because you're leaving the home where Torah and mitzvahs and Kedusha and, and all that, and you're going out into the Rehov, to the Rishus Rabim. And now you, you kind of soak in all the order, and you go out because we behave the same in and outside the house. Our behavior doesn't shift when, just because we've left our homes. Now, um, okay, step five. You ready for step five? Step five is very spiritual. So take your protein pills and put your helmet on. We're going to blast off in step number five. Step number five is there are only about three people who got that reference. Six, seven. Anyway, so step five is quite spiritual. Why? Listen to what step five is. Before there was something, there was nothing, which we call God, right? And now, but there's a creation. So, you know, there's like actual minerals and vegetables and animals and humans and like, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Where did God go to get the stuff? Home Depot? Costco? Like, where did God go to get the stuff? And, the, and, so, and so the next question is this. If all there was was God, in other words, if all there was was himself, what did he create the world out of? Himself. If all there was was himself, so then the world's made of himself. Now, forgive me for calling God a male here, because I've been saying it the whole time, and I just switched to himself, mostly to get you to say himself. But it's also God is referred to in the masculine, because the masculine means causative, and the feminine means to receive. Okay? There's, there's the causer and the receiver. And that's everywhere in every situation. So like a woman's job in the home, is masculine or feminine? Masculine. What does she do? I, I just sit there like a king. And she's just like, you know, here's your soup, and here's your bread, and here's your, you know, here's your chicken, and here's your... And I'm just sitting there going like, wow. You know, and I'm receiving. I'm the feminine. And she's the masculine. When a woman nurses her baby, that's the masculine. She's causing that baby to eat. It's the causative. It's the, she's asserting something into the world. That's all masculine. We live in the most insane generation ever. You understand? We live in a crazy generation. They have, like, lost it completely. Because feminine and masculine have nothing to do with male or female. My wife's involved with male most of the time in her daily actions. I am too, because I teach most of the time right now. I'm in a masculine mode. You're all, men too, are all in the feminine mode right now. Because you're receiving this class. And that's all cool. You know, that's fine. Then there's something called male and female. Male and female is a totally different thing. That's, that's the binary nature of every plant, animal, bird, fish, and human. That the Bria is created binary. Everything's made of male and female in the creation. 
that's and that's why in Judea, in, that's why our Torah calls anyone who deviates from that natural order in any way. If someone deviates from that natural order, so they're called in Hebrew a kadesh if it's a male or a kadesha if it's a female, which means to uh, the word kadosh means separate. Like Shabbos is separate than the week, the Jewish people are separate than the nations. Okay, Jerusalem is separate than the rest of the thing. When you separate your tenth cow, you know, it's separated now. That has to be brought to Jerusalem. And so what happens is when someone when someone when someone deviates from the norm when it comes to intimacy, they become separated out from, from meaning their, their identity becomes separated out to, to that particular behavior. As opposed to someone who's, who's, you know, ex, who's expressing their intimacy in marriage, that person... It will, it will take up almost no slice of their identity. It is something private and between them and their spouse, and you'd never, like, you just don't think of your Uncle Fred that way, you know? It's just not part of his identity. But I promise you, if Uncle Fred was gay, it would be a massive, you know, a massive identity marker. The whole family would know it that way, and that would be how he interacts and where he, what he frequents and and where, where he goes and what he does and how he dresses and it just becomes a Kaddish. It all, the whole field of what makes up human identity will be completely overrun by that, which is a really funny thing that they call these people co- coming out of the closet when they come out of the closet because they're saying, they're, like, they're basically saying, this is who I am. And we're like, I don't think that's who you are. You know, that is not who you are. That's not possible. It can't possibly be who you are. And so, whatever, I, the reason I bring this up is because we all need to get our heads on straight on these subjects. Because if you don't know how to articulate these things, so the chances of you not being able to um, withstand the, uh, the current of, you know, the United States of ASAV, the, you know, the chan- chances are, you know, you'll, w- you'll lose the wrestling match. And so we, we need to be able to articulate things properly. So here's step five. If all there was was God, so what did God use to create the world? And the answer is himself. That was a long parenthesis, by the way. <laughs> because he's causing existence. But where does he do it from? The answer is from himself. The whole world is made of it. Whatever it is, it's made of it because it created the world from itself. So what does that mean? What that means is everything's made of God. And that's why we have another name of God. So far we have the expansive name of God, which is Yudenheim Vavenheim. You should have that in mind when you say it. And we have a name of God that's order. But then we have another name of God, which is Elohim. And Elohim is an interesting name of God because it should immediately set off the alarm. 
Woo, woo, woo. What's the alarm? Plural. Yud and Mem at the end of words. Plural. How can the Jewish people, like famous for monotheism, have a plural name of God? And the answer is that the name Elohim is the God, is how God, beyond space and time, is Elohim filling space and time. So he's not just surrounding like a tortilla, he's the rice and beans. Yeah, he's filling. So he's surrounding and filling creation. And that's where things start getting really spiritual. Now, there are those intellectuals like Baruch, who, who like, seriously, they're intellectuals like him and like my Rebbe. Like, you like my Rebbe a lot. And, and him and my Rebbe, like, they get their spirituality by going out to beyond space and time. But then there's the people who are more, like, live more in their body, a little more like me, where it's like, because think about it. If I'm sitting at my Shabbos table, and Hashem Hu HaElohim, which, remember, in Yom Kippur, seven times, seven is nature, Seven's nature. Everything in sevens happened in nature. Okay, the days of the week, the lunar cycles in sevens. The octave, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. The colors of the rainbow. Everything goes in sevens. Everything natural is in sevens. Not only that, what's interesting is the word ha-teva, which is not really fair, but ha-teva is the numerical value of Elohim. The nature. Ha-teva. It's not exactly fair because you have to have the hay there, but... But it does equal that, and our Rebbe's talk about that. That is the same numerical value, nature and Elohim. Yeah. Thank you for asking, Baruch. So you'll notice in Genesis, till Adam comes on the scene, you know, it's like minerals and, you know, the water, and now it's the fish, and there's, you know, and, the, and then the fourth day is like the stars, and it's all Elohim because that's the natural world. So you only see Shem Elohim because the, gravity has no mercy. It's not like those cartoons we watch where you like, you get, the roadrunner gets to run off the cliff and then has a little grace period. He's like, and then he runs back. He runs back to the cliff and keeps going. So we don't have, Elohim doesn't have that grace period. It's Midas Adin. Because it's the world of nature. Nature has din in it. We're going for some ambience and meditation now. Okay. So, so listen. Now, think about what do we say on, on Yom Kippur seven times. Hashem, who? Elohim. And, and Hasidim say every time we open the Torah... You have been shown to know, or you could say you have been birthed to know. You were created to know. You have been shown to know. Key that. Hashem, that which surrounds space and time. is what fills space and time. And what are the last three words? Ein od milvadoi. There is nothing else. That's all there is is God. And now it all makes sense why we cover our eyes when we say Shema. Because if you're really talking about the oneness, you don't want to see the everythingness. And think about it. Shema. Shin represents fire, expansion. It's even the shape of a bonfire. Shema is the expanding universe. Yeah? Mem 
is the most, by the way, shin on a frequency, if you look at its frequency digitally, it's the highest frequency. Mem, monotonistic, monotonistic, and mem represents water, like the mikvah. The mem saw is the shape, the final mem is, like a, is the shape of a mikvah. And what is water? See, shin causes expansion, meaning separate from the oneness. Mem is, contr- mem is contraction. Contraction, and you know, you could put a screw, you know, this building's held together by rafters and screws and all that stuff. But you could take a screw that holds up a building, put it into water, come back a year later, it's gone. It's gone. It is the ultimate contractor. It's the, uh, uh, there's a better word for it, I forgot what it is right now. Disintegrator. <laughs> Disintegrator. No, I mean the actual technical word for when something comes back to water. I forget. Not important. So, anyway, wrong. So, don't worry about it. Please stop guessing. Now, now listen, the, uh, and, and by the way, this gets very interesting about mikvah, because in the end, when we get scattered out, when we get scattered, so we go to the mikvah, men work all week, get all scattered in their lives and their priorities and stuff, and then... But Shabbos is coming. We go to Toivel before that. Okay? The, uh, the life form that comes from eggs, yeah? If, it, if it's concentrated into a child, that's all great. But if it scatters, so then there's a mikvah necessary to come back to one. Back to one. So, anyway, the, um, so this elokus, again, philosophical people, they can fly with a, the expanding God. But for the rest of us, when I sit at my Shabbos table, who's sitting across from me, based on what we just said? God in the form of my wife, Leah. (coughs) Well, there's a certain way you treat someone who's made of God. You understand? She's not God. God's God. But everything's made of Elokus. And she is Elokus. And so are you. And my kids lighting the table are elokus. And then I drink, I'm very into craft beer. When I drink that craft beer, that's liquid God. <laughs> liquid God. That's the brand. And beer is how we know God loves us. <laughs> and I know it's wine. Yeah. Ben Franklin. So. <coughs> and is it any wonder that, that intimacy... According to the Kabbalah, intimacy is in the pitch black, meaning at least a certain point of intimacy without getting graphic. But at a certain point, Hamevin Yovin, those who understand that point, ideally, Kabbalistically, in the pitch black, which is extremely spiritual, spiritual experience. Now, uh, there's seats up here, ladies. I can back up a little. You might have to deal with the camera. There's some spots up here. So when all of you go back to the lobby when we're done, I expect you to be, like, walking funny. You know, we, got, we still have step six. We're in step five right now. Step six is short, but I expect you all to walk through the lobby. I don't know. Maybe you should swim through the lobby. You know, swim through the elokus. It's called elokus, by the way. Everyone try the word elokus. Elokus is the state of God in nature. So when you walk through the lobby, everyone walk funny or something, but sometimes I like to do this. I like to swim through it. 
You know, you can just swim through the lobby because everything is made of elokus. Okay, that's step five. So step five is very spiritual because that means all your senses are godly experience. Everything you're sensing is part of the godly experience. Excuse me, step six. A little indigestion. <laughs> I usually don't burp while I'm public speaking, but this was the exception. So, anyway, except for one famous time. I have one famous burp that happened publicly. I was speaking to 3,000 girls at, um, at uh, uh, Bubba. <laughs> 3,000 Hasidic girls. Now, you should know something about teaching Hasidic girls when they're interested. They don't move the whole time. And 3,000 girls in uniform, it starts getting surreal after a while. So it started turning like two-dimensional at times. And I'm just going on and on, and they're just like, they just can't believe this is happening. And, and anyway, I get to about an hour, and I'm parched. So I said to the principal, I'm like, I need water. All she could find was a brand new little bottle of seltzer. <laughs> And I, had re- I was really thirsty, and I'd never had this happen before where someone offered me seltzer during a public address. So I just drank an entire cup, poured another one, and drank about half of it. And then I stepped back up to the microphone, and I'm just like, bah. And 3,000 girls go like this. And I just burst out laughing. Is that the last time it was the there? funniest thing. Yeah, that was the last time I spoke there. <laughs> you should know, that once in a while I'm speaking somewhere where I know it's gone south, and I know they're just never going to invite me back. Meanwhile, the kids are loving it. So, you know, it's like some school where the principal's just like freaking out. You know? And by the way, I know how to speak to uh, you know, all these schools. I've spoken to all these like Litvish schools, Hasidic schools, boys' schools, girls' schools. And I speak in all the schools, but once in a while the, it went south because I could just see the principal turn green. So, so now that I know I'm never coming back, so I just start really letting out the, uh, I start really letting out the information, you know, with my, with my website and, you know, and uh, my email. And, and for those of you who secretly have smartphones, here's my WhatsApp. So... Vodka. Yeah, he's great. So, number six, we've been hanging out a bit. Listen, number six. Number six is, so number five was we are it, you know, which really means we are of it or in it, but. Number six is, number five is we are it. Number six is it ain't us. It ain't us. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot. Remember I started my class today in there that I was born a poor black child? Yeah. Do you remember that? You know, later one of the organizers came up to me and was like, what was that whole thing about the poor black child? <laughs> and I was like, no, oh, I never explained it. I can't believe that. So can I just explain to you all yeah. why I said I was born a poor black child? <laughs> Oh, you knew the reference, yeah. So, anyway, I forgot to explain why, because whatever, when you're in a crowd like that and you're speaking, you just kind of got to roll with it. 
but I totally forgot. And it was my opening line. Like, you don't, you got to at least explain your shocking opening line. And I didn't. And there was another thing, too, because later you heard my name was Johnny Glazer, and, and didn't I say my name was Martin? Yeah. Who caught that? Yeah, so my name's John Martin. I'm named after my, my mother's brother, Yom Tov, whose English name was John. And, the, and Martin I got, too, because he died three days before I was born. Martin Luther King. J-O-H-N, which is Yohanan, yeah. So, as opposed to Yonatan, Yohanan is J-O-H-N, which I never knew. I was always embarrassed about my name, because I was like, couldn't you have given me a Jewish name like Yonatan? Like, had to be J-O-H-N, it's such a goyish name. And until I, uh, all the way years later, I'm at Eishat Torah, I'm known as Yom Tov, and my chavrusa says, what's going on, Yochanan? And I'm like, Yochanan? He's like, yeah, isn't your English name John with an H? I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's Yochanan. And then I think, like, hey, he's right. You know, in Germany, you'd be called, like, Scandinavia, you'd be Yochan, right? It's just the H doesn't pronounce in English. Anyway, about the poor black child was, what I was saying is that not a poor black child like like in the Bronx or something like that. Meaning an Ethiopian with a distended belly and a swollen skull and toothpick arms with flies all around. Because even though I grew up in that mansion, I was starving. Oh, you got it. <laughs> and I totally missed that. I like botched that so bad. Thank God it was on Java's, not on video. <laughs> oh my God. Some speeches you're like, oh, I wish that were not on Shabbos. And some speeches you're like, thank God it was on Shabbos. Because I totally botched that. Step six is, it ain't us. We're it, but it ain't us. It's an infinite being. And it's infinitely beyond anything it makes. Okay? We're a figment of its imagination, but its imagination is God knows you know, how big that is. Meaning, what I'm trying to say is that you can make the mistake. Had I not told you step six, some of you in here who just found out that you're God is going to walk out there and start making announcements. Yeah? God has arrived to the Malava Malka. Yeah. You understand? Like, You've got to be careful. With step five. <coughs> because, yeah, it's true. We are it. Hashem Hu Elohim. He is the Elokus. But he ain't us. He's infinitely beyond us. So it's not like a screwdriver where it's like, well, that's three to one. But it's not like a Red Bull and vodka where it's like one to one. It's, it's not a one to one like there's God and he made the world out of himself. And so we're like, we're like, this is God. This ain't God. God is infinitely beyond this. This is all being strobed into existence, which I'm not going to go deeper into right now. But you should hear some of the Kabbalah classes I have online about how all of this is a digital simulation. All of this is going on digitally. And they've actually got, you know, sounds already digitized because only, the only music you ever hear is digital. It's just ones and zeros. And, and, and sight is digitized. We've all seen DVDs and, you know, like... You know, you watch Tor any time, that's going to be digital. Yeah. And so sites digital, and they've now digitized taste. You know, taste is all digital. They, they, taste has vibration. And it's actual got, it actually has digital numerics. And by the way, you should know that one in 60 disappears vibrationally. One actually nullifies in 60 in taste, which is amazing. 
and meaning our sages always knew that, but now we see it digitally. One is no longer recognizable among 60 in digital, in taste digit, uh, technology. This is all a digital world. Mashiach's coming. Mashiach's coming. This is all, this is all just digital, and you're just a spirit in the material world. Okay? You're just a spirit in a material world. Your soul, you, think, you probably think your bodies and your soul are one to one too. Like, you know, soul and body, after hearing all the songs, you know, with all my heart and all my souls, I got one heart, I got, must got one soul. No, your soul is like gigantic. Your soul, you know, the very bottom of your soul is what USB cable clicks interfaces to your brain. But the soul's like massive. There could be people in this room who even share your root soul. Because if you just do the math, if there's 14 billion Jews on earth, but there's only 600,000 root souls, that means we all have about, uh, uh, what would be the math? Oh, gosh. Um, hey, Siri, what's 14 million divided by 600,000? 14 million divided by 600,000 is about 23.3333. There could be 23 of you. I didn't know that. Listen up. There could be 23 of you. They're not you. They didn't have your life story and stuff because all of us are heavily patterned by our life story. That's what the possible you, I run a seminar called the possible you, is where you start putting your whole life story into question and get all the way back to the part of us that we all have in common, which is the soul. But you could have 22. Sorry, did I say 23? You could have 22 of you walking the planet right now. You probably don't because God loves us so much that he can't stand it when we're here. So there's probably more than half of you are, are up in a world called Yitzira, which is above the world of Asiya. And there's probably most of yous there, meaning of the yous that were out here. They're probably mostly there. There's probably a couple of you hanging around. And your job's to marry the one that was from Sinai. And that's why I get so crushed Kabbalistically for intermarriage is because if that guy marries his Filipino massage therapist, <laughs> that means not only did he go without his soulmate, there's some girl out there, the boss Plony La Plony, she's stuck. She, she won't be marrying her soulmate. So there's like heavy Kabbalistic implications about these souls that come around and that have to meet and for those of you single people around here, I noticed a couple single people, at least on this side. Um, for those, you know, this guy's got a little secret. So he's got three wives. So anyway, for the single people here, you're probably like, oh gosh, how am I supposed to find it? Don't worry about it. You know, you'll notice all the married ladies and men in the room, they also had no idea. And they, sem- they seem to be married. So God arranges everything. It all works out. The person you're under the chuppah with is the one. That's the one. What was your individual cute story that you love to tell? You know, that was just like God basically suckering you into something. Okay? But the main thing is the souls have to meet. And because those souls have to create children. And the children have this big tikkun, this big spiritual, uh, how do you say tikkun in English, uh, rectification that has to take place. And so that it has to be the right souls marrying one another. So we're all good. Like everyone, you're, you're all married to your soulmates. Don't worry. Even if you don't get along. 
I remember there was this horrible couple in Israel. There was this just this horrendous couple. And they were just like, it was Kramer versus Kramer at all times. And, you know, I mean, it was just like major world wars going on. So all the rabbis are like, please get divorced, please get divorced, please get divorced. Like, we would beg them to get divorced. You know what they'd always say? They'd always say, if we get divorced in this world, we're going to have to come back and do it again. We just want to get it done. And then it was like, as he said, we just want to get it done. Like, a, a, like a, a planter came flying by and like, you know, like a vased plant, you know, just like straight through the window and into their swimming pool. And I was just like, holy moly, I'm getting out of here. Just kidding. That was just cool visual. Now, anyway, but it ain't, it ain't us. So let me give you an example. This will be a good visual. Um, you know, I'll use this bottle. So imagine I dip this bottle into the Atlantic Ocean, and I get about that much water. I doubt it would be this clear. But I get this much water in from the Atlantic Ocean. And then I decide I'm going to walk around the East Village with it and, ex- and, you know, share the news that I've got the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah? So I've got the Atlantic Ocean right here in this bottle. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Atlantic Ocean. This is the Atlantic Ocean. I've got the Atlantic Ocean in my hand here. I've got the Atlantic Ocean in my hand. I've got the Atlantic Ocean in my hand. I've got the Atlantic Ocean in my hand. You want to help me? I've got the Atlantic Ocean in my hand. So anyway... Eventually, I wind up in front of one of these uh, NY, you know, post-9-11 NYPD guys, and he's like, um, sir, can I uh, speak to you a moment? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, why don't you come with me? And then he takes me, like, there's a little local you know, precinct uh, you know, police station. He takes me in there. This goes straight to a lab. <laughs> and then... Yeah, you know, now he's questioning me like he's my psychologist. You know, he's like, so how long have you felt this way about your bottle of water? And I'm just like, ever since I'm little. You know, so anyway, so what's that? I better not pay you for this. Anyway, so finally a guy comes out in a lab coat and, you know, he, he reads it off and, he, and the officer's like, what's in the bottle? And, they, and the guy says, well, sir, we've done a write-up on the entire contents of the bottle, and it's, uh, well, it's the Atlantic Ocean. Now, what is ridiculous about calling this the Atlantic Ocean? And the obvious thing is that, you know, this bottle, the ratio of this bottle to the Atlantic Ocean is ridiculous. You know, it's just ridiculous to call this the Atlantic Ocean. Even though its contents are the Atlantic Ocean, it's ridiculous. I mean, how many bottles are there in the Atlantic Ocean. So I checked out the number before Shabbos. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's one to a godzillion. Because only God knows how many zillions of bottles are inside the ocean. Yeah. There's, there's evaporation going on the whole time. I make up words, by the way. You heard physiosophy earlier, and now we've got godzillion. Uh, by the way, you're all free to use physiosophy. That's what you say when everyone someone tries to destroy your lecture with intellectual arguments. And you bring up the word physiosophy. And, and the other is, um, is uh, godzillion, because okay? only God knows how many zillion. But there is a ratio. It's just changing all the time because of evaporation. And you know, it's really hard to know. But obviously, it's a ridiculously gigantic one. So now I have a question for all of you. 
Ready? How, oh, which ratio's bigger? You ready for this? This is a crazy question. What's a bigger ratio? Park, I can't wait to, what you're gonna say about this. But don't answer before them, give them a chance, okay? I'm blocking you from the ball. <laughs> What's a bigger ratio? This bottle to the Atlantic Ocean or the entire expanding universe into the mind of God or into God. Like, what's a bigger ratio? This bottle to the Atlantic Ocean has a ratio. Or the entire expanding universe, that means galaxies beyond number, to the being that it's somehow expanding into, I guess. I don't know where it's going. Which one's a bigger ratio? Who wants to take? First one or the second one? Second one. Yeah, the second one's obviously much bigger because, well, I'm sure what Baruch was going to say, well, it's not exactly a fair question, Rabbi, because the first ratio are finite. The second one is, the first one's finite, but the second one's not. So it's not a fair ratio, but I think we all, in the physiological <laughs> way of thinking, you know, which is... This world thinking is that is that we're talking about something very massive, and so you would never walk out of this room announcing that God has arrived, meaning you. Okay, no one's going to walk out of here announcing God's arrived to the Malava Malka, because God's infinitely beyond it. Now this gives us a great anchor now for the first two of the Ten Commandments. Anochi Hashem is before there was something there was nothing which we call God. That's Anochi. And then, that you should have no other gods. Don't point to any one thing in creation and ascribe power to it because God's infinitely beyond creation and there are powerful things. But you are not allowed to ascribe power to it because we always thank the chef, not necessarily the waiter. You should thank your waiter too, sorry. We don't just thank our waiter. We thank the chef. Because all those powers are just mediums via which God, you know, is running the show here. And we do not ascribe power to those mediums. So that's the first two commandments. And um, there was one more thing I was going to say about, the, about the step six. God being infinitely beyond it. Oh, gosh. I was supposed to teach a totally different class. You know what? I'm just going to give you the punchline. Should I give you the punchline of the whole class? Should I give you the punchline? So the class is called Control. Is anyone here on the Discovery track? No one's here on the Discovery track? Oh, my gosh. So then it doesn't matter. Maybe we should just go to the Malama Mark. Yeah? Ladies, you can come sit. There's there's seats. Punchline, punchline. Should I do it? Okay, here's the story. Here's the story. What we came here to do today was to understand, we came here to understand, did a human being write the Torah, you know, or did, was it a divine being like God? That's what we came to figure out. Now, obviously, the Torah is a document. You know, even an atheist would call it a document. They don't say it's not existing. They just say its authorship 
is not God. That's what an atheist would say. Whereas we would say, it's, we agree, yes, it's a document. It's authored by God. It's a divine document. And the beauty of the Discovery Seminar is we get an actual day where we get to like take out the word Torah and take out the word God and just call it a document and an author. Let's figure out who authored it. And there's various proofs throughout the day when we do Discovery. And last night, I think Rav Gav did uh, Seven Wonders. Was that today, maybe? Last night, he did Seven Wonders. And showing, you know, seven contradictory predictions of, cl- of what would happen to the Jewish people that should cancel each other out, yet they all come true. And this class is called Control. And what it's showing is, well, I'll ask you, if the author's human, can that author control human history? If it's a human author, can it control history? No. If the author is divine, can it control human history? Uh, I mean, there, we have free will. So, I mean, let's say yes, but there may have to be adjustments. Because you do have free will. And in fact, you see there are adjustments. So, so the answer is, you know, the, yes, that being. If it's a divine author, then the author would have control. So what do we do? We just want to set it up to see the control of the author. How? By having Jacob and Asaph go, they go through three altercations. And we have a principle that whatever our forefathers go through, it's a sign of the future. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Well, Jacob's going to be towards the end of times. It's going to span most of history. And, and so Jacob and Asaph fight three times over the land of Israel. Time one is uh, when Jacob, uh, over the birthright and the blessings. Time two is when Jacob's on his way back into the land in Vayishlach, when he's coming back to the land. And step time three was when Jacob's coming, is going to be buried in the land of Israel, and Asaph tries to prevent the burial, and then gets decapitated, and Jacob gets to be buried there. Asaph's head rolls into the, into the cave. Let's turn off phones, please, so we're not interrupted by phone calls. Thank you, whoever you are. Now, those are the three altercations between those two. Now, let's see how it pans out in history. So the Jews leave Egypt after the plagues. They leave Egypt. They're on their way to where? The land of Israel, with a stopover at Sinai. But they're on their way to the land of Israel. Who attacks them in the desert? Amalek. Amalek. Yeah, Amalek. And um, who's Amalek? He's the grandson of Asaph. Because Asaph had Eliphaz, and Eliphaz, with his daughter Timnah, had Asaph. Okay? And... Amalek. Thank you. A little sleep deprived. And they had Amalek. So anyway, Amalek attacks them in the desert. Now there's three things we know about Amalek. One is he's against uh, conscience. You know, he, he's, he's against conscience, like meaning you're right and wrong, the right and wrong mechanism inside people. And he's against bris milah, covenant of the circumcision. And he's also sworn to prevent the he's sworn to prevent Israel from attaining its perfection which is interdependent with its dwelling in the land and will rise up whenever redemption is imminent. So redemption's imminent. We're leaving Egypt. We're going to Israel. Here comes Amalek. That's attack one. We rebuild the second, the first, we build the first temple. It's destroyed by the Babylonians. We go into exile for how many years? 
70 years. 70th year means we're coming back into the land, which means the time of redemption is imminent. Well, who attacks at the time of redemption? Haman. Who's Haman? Haman Ha'agagi. Haman Ha'agagi, who was Agag, the king of Amalek. So we get attacked again by Amalek, and this time through the threat of Haman. So now we're two for two in the control of history. Asaph has had three altercations over who gets the land. The Jewish people, in the time of redemption is imminent, gets attacked by Amalek in the desert, gets attacked by Haman with a genocidal attempt during the Purim story that we're two for two. Now, we, re, we build this, rebuild the temple. We now have second temple. It's destroyed by the Romans, and we go into a 2,000-year exile. And during that 2,000-year exile, Amalek goes into sleeper cell mode. No, no noise from Amalek for 2,000 years. But what's going to happen in 1948? Declaration of the State of Israel. And the Jews come back from all over the world. May Abba. May our back and foes are Boom, boom, doop, doop, boom. From the four corners of the earth, deliver our people. So, anyway, so the, the Jews all are all coming back. So, guess what happens right before that? Because it says when the time of redemption is imminent, is when Amalek attacks, we get attacked. Who attacks us? The Nazis. Maxima. We get attacked by the Nazis right before the, it, Israel declares statehood. Now, the state of Israel has a totally different narrative. They want everyone to believe that we need the state of Israel because of anti-Semitism. You understand? They play that narrative off. So, like, which is fine. It's great. You know, like when, when uh, you know, a dignitary comes to Israel, what's their first stop? Yad Vashem. And then they show them, see what happens, you know. See what happens if you don't protect Israel, you know. If you don't put our interests at, you know, at the highest priorities. 1948, World War II is over. No, but I'm saying that the Nazis, which is Amalek, which we all agree, was before. Thank you. So That's what I said. When the time of redemption is imminent, we get attacked by Amalek. Yeah. And by the way, for those of you who have, like, Satmir friends who, like, want to say the state of Israel is not divine, wait till you hear what I'm about to say. Now, um, anyway, but here we go. So the Nazis attack. Now, how do we know the Nazis are Amalek? Now, it turns out we, act, we have Hitler's writings. And Hitler in Maximo writes that he is here to eradicate the false invention of conscience and morality. These are Jewish inventions. Circumcision and conscience are the like scourge of humanity. And I've come, he's come to eradicate this. Now, Hitler says it himself, the exact simonim. And when does he do it? The third simon, right before we come into the land, is when he does it. All three simonim, Hitler hits. Now, it turns out that the Talmud mentions Germany by name because Asaph had a prayer from the Tehillim Sorry, Jacob has a prayer from Tehillim where he prays, don't grant the desires of the evil man. The Talmud says this refers to Asaph. And don't let him draw out his bit. The bit is the, the bridle of a horse inside its mouth against lips. Don't draw it out. When you draw out a bit, the horse goes. When you, when you draw it in, it stops. 
Don't draw out the bit. This refers to Germania, that's the name of Germany for its history. Only today, you know, people call it Germany. Even they don't call themselves Germany. They're Deutschland. But Germania was Germany's name throughout history. Don't, so don't, don't grant the desires of the evil man. This refers to Asaph. And don't let him draw out his bit. This refers to Germania of Edom. For should they draw out the bit, they would go to destroy the entire world. So what's the bit for Germany? The bit for Germany. Now, it's amazing. The Talmud's calling, telling us straight out that Germany is the Nazis. So what is, the, what is the bit? The bit is unity, meaning Germany was always... Now, the Talmud goes on and says Germany had 300 crown princes. Germany of Edom. It says Germania of Edom had 300 crown princes. That's what it says in Masechus Megillah. On 16b. And amazingly, you can actually read history books post-war that says, you know, well, Britain and France, you know, emerged as unified nations. Germany remained a crazy patchwork of some 300 individual states. So the Talmud not only mentions Germany by name, that that's what we got to watch out for, but it even mentions the mechanism by which Germany's dangerous, and that is unity. Don't let them unify. And it turns out, at the end of the 1900s, they did unify under the name of, under the name of someone named Bismarck, who unified Germany right after that, World War I, and Germany almost destroys the world. The nations separate them again, unified under Hitler, World War II. There they go again. The Talmud nails this. But then the last proof that the Nazis are Amalek, and here's where it gets really powerful, because what are we trying to do? Right now we're in the trees. Let me show you the forest again. We're trying, what we're seeing here is the author. Can the author control history? And what we're seeing here is, yes, you know, whoever authored this document, we seem to have a third altercation. So it turns out we're going to open the Megillah itself. When you're reading the Megillah, you know, it reads long, reads long, reads long. You know, a lot of, in Yerushalayim, we read it actually on cloth. We read it like a Torah scroll. Everyone has their own. In fact, when you marry off your kids, you have to buy your chosen a, uh, a Megillah. Is that like that for Hasidim in America? Yes. Yeah, you buy them a cloth. So you buy your chosen a cloth, amongst a million other things. Oh, my gosh. And, Baruch Hashem. Yeah. Thank God. We should just keep going that way. Yeah. So... Anyway, you're reading along. It reads like any other part of the Torah. And then all of a sudden, you get this weird page. What does the weird page have? It has the names of Haman's sons on one side and the word the ace on the other, which is just and. And the whole thing's blank in the middle, meaning it's an Excel sheet of Haman's 10 sons who were hung on the gallows, which is like a very strange page in the top, very strange page in Tanakh. Everyone check your phones real quick. We'll be done in five minutes, but just so no one's phone rings, if you got a phone, please check it. That it's ringers off. Oh, she ain't. Oh, good, she didn't. Yeah. I call it the street three strike thing. Is that one strike that's on, two strikes they answer, third strike they're out. You know, because they're like, so, three strikes, yeah. Okay, that was great. You're two strikes and you hit it out of the park. That was great. Okay, listen. There's a list of names of 
Hitler's ten sons. Now, here's the crazy part. Haman's ten sons. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Those who know me as a public speaker could now officially tell you how tired I am right now. I mean, I'm literally going to finish this class and go crash for the rest of the night. But listen, listen carefully. Thank you. Um, listen. Haman's ten sons have nothing to do with the story. They're not in the story. Not before and not after. Why do they get this special page? But as you read down, it says that Haman's ten sons were killed not by hanging. They were killed by the sword. All ten kids were killed by the sword, including in Shushan Abira, 500 men were killed. So ten sons were killed, 500 men were killed. And then the king turns to Esther and says, and it says the king, doesn't say Ahasuerus there, the king says to Esther, you know, what is your request now? It shall be granted. What is your petition further? It shall be fulfilled. Now you got the king, or you got Ahasuerus the king. Mordechai is wearing the signet ring. He's got the ring now of the king. And Esther's already revealed who she is. And everyone knows the Jews need to go back. So it's quite obvious what she should answer. And by the way, every other time he says, Ad Chetzia Malchus. Because what's halfway between India, Hodu, Ad Kush, and Africa? What's halfway? Jerusalem. Meaning you can have anything, not Jerusalem. But this time he doesn't say, Ad Chetzia Malchus. You can have whatever you want, Esther. And you know what Esther replies? I mean, she must have bumped her head and gone temporarily insane. She replies, May it, may it be your will to do tomorrow as was done today, and may Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. What's up with you, Esther? What happened to Esther? Like, how about let's go back to Israel, commission the Jews to come home, rebuild Jerusalem and every other city that was destroyed. Like, he had money. Rebuild the place. Like, what a crazy request. Hang ten dead men. But she says, tomorrow. And when a prophetess says the word, when a prophetess says the word tomorrow, when pro- <laughs> he's a total intellectual. He's a total intellectual. That was so cute. Well, you can get to know Baruch later. So... You guys would be friends. It's amazing how Hashem makes each one of us like so specific and and so unique, you know. So anyway, Hashem, you're going to learn a lot of Torah in your life. Intellectuals love Torah. You know, once in a blue moon, we get an Asia Torah guy, like a new guy at Asia, who's an intellectual. An intellectual, like one in ten people. So we get an intellectual, and he'd be looking around, seeing everyone studying. He's like, "Hey, I like this." You know, and then he starts studying a little. You don't even have to talk to him about God. He'll just start studying. So he's studying and studying and studying. Later he's like, what about all these married guys? I mean, don't they work? And like, no, no, they're in Kailil. And they're like, what's Kailil? Kailil means, and he knows Asians, you know, it's basically free for the students. You know, he's like, we're like, Kailil is where you start getting paid a stipend to continue your studies. You know what this guy does? He like goes to the computer and emails his parents that, that we're sorry your son Jacob has died. <laughs> and we can't find his body, so don't bother inquiring further. Our condolences. 
they're just in heaven. You know, like they've, they've found heaven, these intellectuals. So anyway, so let's, let's finish it up. No one should leave from now on because you're going to miss the punchline. The punchline's now, okay? But listen up. So Esther says this crazy thing. But when a prophetess says the word tomorrow, what might she mean? Yeah, the future. At which point, if we had our screen, it would show up with a newspaper going and then stopping. And it says, the Nuremberg trials. The Nuremberg trials, 1946, a New York Times magazine. Sorry, newspaper, New York Times newspaper. And it shows the picture in the courtroom photo of the war crimes tribunal where 10 Nazis are sitting. Now, it turns out there were 11, and amazingly, one of them commits suicide. Yeah, I heard he was like a transvestite yeah, or something. Yeah. Cross Do we have to bring up things about... No, no, but it, it adds to the story. Do we have to bring up the transvestites right now? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the one who spoke all about these issues earlier. So... Anyway, he was out of the closet. Okay, so <laughs> he was in the closet. But anyway, listen, listen. So, so it, so we get to the Nuremberg trials. By the way, one commits suicide. Did Haman have another child? He had a daughter. How did she die? She commits suicide. So the New York, the New York Times ma- newspaper says, says um, one ends life by poison, suicide. Ten others, you know waiting for their hangings. So, turns out, the caption says, though the trial ended in June 1946, sentencing was repeatedly postponed due to appeals for amnesty. Amnesty, for anyone under the age of 30, means pardon. That they should be pardoned. I mean, do we, today, do we pardon, when we find these 96-year-old Nazis, do we pardon them or we, we put them in jail to rot? These guys, these guys were hardcore, like, major up, high ups in the Nazi, you know, Nazi party. These people should have been hung in June 1946, but instead, <laughs> instead, they were not hung, not in June. And this is why I said before that when we said the author has control, he has control, but he may have to adjust. Because June 1946 wasn't the perfect time. And I'll tell you why. They weren't hung in June 1946. Can I tell you what 1946 was in Hebrew calendar? 1946 spans Tav Shin Vav, and then Rosh Hashanah becomes Tav Shin Zion, right? They were hung on the 16th of October, so that was after Rosh Hashanah. They were hung in Tav Shin Zion. But June's Tav Shin Vav. So they were not hung in June, not in July, not in August, not in September. The end of September, Tav Shin Vav becomes Tav Shin Zion, and when are they hung? They're hung punct on the day of Hoshana Rabbah, which is like kind of rains on your parade. I mean, it's like a little weird, but it winds up during the festival of Sukkot. Well, for us, that sounds weird, but it doesn't sound weird to the Zohar. When you click on the Zohar, on the word Hoshana Rabbah, guess what it says? On Hoshana Rabbah, the judgments of the nations of the world are finalized. Judgments are executed in the red, uh, red executed in this. Uh, can everyone take out their phones and turn off their ringers, please? Okay, so. Oh yeah, you gotta find it. That's right, men, you should know, you never have a ringer on your phone, okay? That's for women's purses. We don't have to like show how popular we are with a ringer. 
Okay. Our phones never ring. Okay. You never use your ringer ever. You got that? Everyone over the age of 50 in here. Okay. Your ringer will never, ever, ever be on unless. I mean, my ringer goes on once a year when like I can't have my phone on me and I'm waiting for an important call and I put my phone wherever it has to be. And then, you know, I'll know it's ringing for the emergency. Women get to use ringers because that person, they got to find it amongst their entire house. Okay? So, now, listen up. They get, oh, judgments are, whatever, decided and executed at the residence of the king. Now, how many times does Zohar use the word residence of the king for God? That's a little strange. But what's it an allusion to? The Purim story. It literally uses the words, judgments are executed from the residence of the king. It turns out that Hoshana Rabbah, according to the Zohar, is judgment day of the nations from the residence of the king. Now, here's the crazy part. You ready? I got two crazy parts to tell you, and then we're done. Crazy part one is that the letters Taf Shin Zion, when you look at the very first name of the ten names, for 2,500 years, every scribe writes a little Shin for the first name called, sorry, little Taf for the first name Parmashta, sorry, Parshandasa. So Parshandasa, the last Taf there, is a little Taf. And when you go about two-thirds the way down, you get to a name Parmashta, and there's a little Shin. And then when you get to the bottom name, it's the name Vaisasa with a little Zion. Embedded inside the names of ten, the ten sons of Haman on this weird Excel sheet, listing the names of people who are not even involved in the story, not before and not after, is the actual date of the Nuremberg trials. Sentencing is repeatedly postponed due to appeals for amnesty, and it lands right on Hoshana Rabbah, Taf Shin Zion. And there's no traditions about those little letters. I Meaning we have a lot of traditions about the big letters and little letters throughout the Torah. This one remained without a tradition. It was just put in by every scribe throughout history. Now it gets even better because Taf Shin Zion is set really 707. 400, Shin is 300, that's 700, and Zion is 7, 707. Well, 707, how many times does that happen? Well, look at my fingers. Everyone say, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, as I go. You ready? Everyone say, Aleph. 707, 1707, 2707, 3707, 4707, 5707, Vav. And it turns out, when you go to the bottom of that list, there's a giant Vav. On my Megillah, it's like an inch long. There's a giant Vav for the name Vizasa, a giant vav, and it also has its own Zohar. I'm not going to share with you the Zohar in that vav, but it's, but it's all about redemption, and it's amazing. And, um, you know, I, since there are a lot of frum men in the room, I'll say um, the vav, uh, the Zohar reads there by the vav, it says that when the vav of, when the, when the vav of God's name descend, descends, representing the sixth millennia, that's the one we're in, when the, when the vav of God's name descends, the hay will rise up from the dust of the ashes. Well, sorry, dust, that hay will rise up from the dust of the exile. And that's the missing vav and hay of Keska. Yeah? 
That's the missing vav and hey. By the way, vanafohu, who spelled backwards, is is the missing letters of the kisei, uh, the aleph, and then the vav and the hey. Case vanafohu. When you flip those around, you got the missing letters there as well. Anyway, listen, listen. I'm doing too much. I'll go, I'll go crazy. Start talking Megillah right now. Listen. The um, here's the second surprise. So that's the first surprise. And let me bring you out of the trees for a second. We're trying to find out here, does the author have control over history? How's that for control? You get what's going on here? Like, you get the control over history? Could a human being have put this in the Megillah? Could a human being have written this? And we're in the Megillah. Like, if you learn Torah codes, they're mostly in Genesis and stuff. Like, we're way towards the end of Tanakh with the Megillah. And then you got the most insane code ever of the Nuremberg trials right there for you. Okay, the last crazy thing is, uh, is it comes actually from a Newsweek article. Um, we know it because of a Newsweek article where it, it basically goes through all the hangings. And it's a pretty boring article. It just talks about the hangings and mentions the hangman. The hangman by the name's name was Woods. The one who actually did the hanging, his name was Woods. Jewish? No. His name was Woods, which is uh, the word eights, which is kind of cute because it's all eights, all eights throughout the Megillah. It keeps saying all eights. And the hangman's name is Woods. You know, whoever it was, it was just some guy named Woods. Anyway, so nine Nazis, listen, nine Nazis get hung, like, totally, like, composed. Like, they got up there, they said the name, they're hung, boom. Second one, boom. Third one, boom. Fourth one, boom. Comes to the ninth one. When they get to the ninth one, listen what it says here in the Newsweek article. Only Julius Stryker went without dignity. He had to be pushed across the floor, wild-eyed and screaming, Hal Hitler, and now I go to God. He turned to the witnesses facing the gallows and shouted, Purimfest, 1946. start to get a sense of the authorship of the Torah, <laughs> that the author is actually, you know, it's God. Because a human being couldn't have pulled this one off at all. And the fact that the Nazis even know who they are as Amalek is crazy, because that's a direct Amalek admission. That's all it is, really. It's just a direct Amalek admission in 1946 after we lose a third of our people in a genocide attempt. It's crazy to realize that this is all actually spiritually ordained before we come into the land. Crazy. And when you, um, by the way, I, I mentioned like dealing with Satmer Hasidim who are like, you know, like, we weren't supposed to come into the land. Well, good luck explaining the Tafshin Zion business. You understand, you have to have the Nuremberg trials in Tafshin. And... Zion there, which is exactly right after the Holocaust. By the way, they do have a, if you want to know, they do have a, a reply. And their reply is, well, oh no, their reply is no good. No, no it's not good because it, you still have the Esther, you still have the Megillah thing. Now, um, here's the funny thing about all of this, is why are we even discussing the authorship of the Torah? It's ridiculous to discuss it. Like, uh, let's just say, for example, um, I don't know, I'll take any volunteer. I owe oh, my little friend here. 
uh, Ginniger, what's your first name again? Yechiel. Rabbi, Rabbi Ginniger's kid. So, Yechiel. Um, if Yechiel wrote something that, you know, someone found it in the hotel and felt, oh my gosh, this is a threat to national security. Yeah? And then they, uh, and then, you know, they call the police and then the FBI and everything. And, and now they're like, by the way, they don't know what Yechiel wrote. It was just found on the floor. Do you think if they got enough people on it, they could trace it back? They could find the person? Yes or no? Yes. So the answer is, yes. yeah, for sure they could. For sure they could. Don't worry, you didn't do this. <laughs> they could find him. Yes. Now, think about the question we're asking. We've got this massive document, and we're trying to figure out if it was a human or God. Like, that's a, that's a dumb question. You understand? It, it, it's a silly question. Barak, listen to this part, because I want you to poke a hole in this one. So listen carefully. You, you, you heard so far? Okay, great. So, meaning, if someone could trace back the authorship of a little note that, you know, for whatever reason, the high-tech people of national security would, you know, would want to find out who wrote it and could. So what in the world are we doing here trying to figure out if this gigantic document called Tanakh is written by a human or God? I mean, one thing would be trying to find out which human did it, but human or God's ridiculous. Obviously, it's one or the other. And it should be all too obvious that it's one or the other. Why would we ever make a whole day discovery? And the truth is it was originally a week, and then it moved to three days, and then it was like a whole day, and then it went to like five hours, and now it's at like uh, 30 minutes. So... (laughs) It's very amazing. You want to know something about three days? Three days, when it was three days, everyone who did it was more likely to... They would all marry a Jew, they said. Um, and many were more likely to become observant after watching the three days. And then, but what happened was we couldn't fill the room anymore because who's going to give third, three days about the meaning of life? So the answer was no one. So we moved it to one day. The second we moved it to one day, that was our last ball tshuva from Discovery. No one else became from after Discovery. Yeah. Because there's something very special about three days. It's also in my seminar. It's the possible use seminar, which like breaks your whole narrative. Like all the computer just shuts down, and you're suddenly like free of your whole story that's been like making you crazy. I don't do the deep work till we're on the third day. U.S. doesn't interrogate for real till the third day. Okay? The human psyche can't withstand three days. We 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 lose our composure intellectually on the third day. Anyway, so it should be all too obvious, it should be all too obvious who authored this thing if it's between God and man. I mean, and whoever it is, certainly, you know, it's like a burglar covered in chocolate cake because it just couldn't get his hands off your chocolate cake. So, like, he's on his way in to pick the safe and take the silver, but he's like, found the chocolate cake. He's like, and then smears chocolate all over your house. You know, it's like, it should be so obvious. So why is it we don't, why do we even care? So, why do we want to know who authored the Torah if it's so obvious who authored the Torah? And the answer is, is that deep down, none of us want it to be God. Part of you wants it to be God. If you were secular, well, who wants a world without God? That would be lame. If you're observant, well, your lifestyle makes no sense if it's not God. You understand? You're, the whole dictates of your whole lifestyle is based on the Torah. So if the Torah is not true, so then you're just, I don't know, you're a loser. I don't know what you're... You know, you're like, sorry, joke's on you. 
you know, like keeping Shabbos every week for nothing, you know. I mean, the family stuff's amazing, but like, come on, let's go. We can jet ski as a family too. You know? So, anyway, the bottom line is that that if you're, you kind of want it to be God, but we all have to know we got a part of us that wishes it wasn't, and that part of us is the part of us that just doesn't want the surveillance camera in the bathroom. You know, does anyone have a surveillance camera in their bathroom? No. Right? Nobody wants a surveillance camera in their bathroom. But once you say there's a God, once you prove there's a God, well, guess what? There's a surveillance camera not just in your bathroom. It's in your mind. It's in your speech. It's in your actions. You're being watched. You're being followed. You're at all times under full surveillance. And it takes away a certain sense of autonomy, which I believe is one of the most spiritual feelings in the world, is to have a little of your autonomy taken away because we're all made of elocus anyway. And what is free will? It, it turns the whole free will question really exciting when you realize we're all of God. So then what is free will? It's pretty interesting. Bottom line is all of us deep down have a bit of a dark wish that, there was, that the authorship was human, human. But God set it up. And I'm going to finish with this. Every discovery class is for days of Mashiach. How do we know? Because the seven wonders of Jewish history are irrelevant without going through all of history and seeing they all came true. The uh, identification of certain animals that's saying, only these animals will chew their cud but not have split hooves. Don't say only these, because the majority of zoology only was discovered in the last hundred years. So don't say only these, it's delegitimizing. And yet the Torah goes on a limb and says it. But you need all of history to now know the zoology we know the codes of the Torah, you needed computers. So the fact that we have these crazy codes in the Torah, that class required computers. End of days. This class, you can't teach this class until 1946, the end of days. So it turns out that embedded in our Torah is our generation. That would be wondering, is there a God? Is there not a God? Like, we had to get to our generation. That the Torah actually embeds the answer, and so I'll finish with this, is that when Esther had the option of base of Mikdash, which wound up only getting built by her son Daryavish a generation later, when she had the choice between commissioning the return of the Jewish people and the rebuilding of Israel, or this code in the Torah, she chose our generation. She said, yeah, Beit Mikdash, you know, that's cool, but she, she's a prophetess, she probably saw most of the people were going to be too busy, you know, with their little kosher restaurants on 13th Avenue and, uh, and you know, Main Street and Queens and, like, in the five towns. Like, eh, nobody's really coming back. And it turns out she was right. Majority of Jews didn't come back. And they, they, there was a minority of Jews. Did you know that whole second temple never got a majority? And that's why they never took the Torah out. Torah is still in hiding. The Ark is still in hiding from First Temple. They didn't take it out because they were scared. Like the Jews didn't come back. So they did everything in base of Migdash, but they're not going to bring out the Ark. That's too dangerous. So they left it in. Still hidden. And the, but anyway, the, what happened in the end is that, is that Esther chose us so that people in our generation who would be wondering, you know, is there a God? Or is Torah relevant? Is Torah divine? Our mitzvah's relevant in 2020. And so Esther said, you know what? I'm voting with the kids at the end of days. I'm going to go with that 
The temple will be built a generation later. Let's make sure that every Jew in year 2020 can have access to the fact that all of this is real. And that's why the land of Israel is called Israel. Thank you very much, Sean. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.